Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Wilsh, your host, and uh, we have an exciting show for you tonight. We have two guests. We're starting out with Jack Bouchong, and uh, he actually contacted me because he read a blog that Charles Lear wrote about his case in Michigan, which happened in 1994. Um, I don't want to get the dates confused with the other one, which is an our guest, Ian Rogers. He's going to be in the second half about Canada's uh, crazy UFO well, I'll give a spoiler here. It, it was a hoax, but um, called the some people call it the Guardian case, the Guardian uh, VHS uh, video that was sent to someone. Uh, some people call it the Carp Ontario uh, incident, you know, that. But it, there's a lot more to it than just what was hoaxed because it was there's a lot going on in that particular area, believe it or not. So anyway, we'll be talking to him on the second part of this show. And our blog this week is A Helicopter Crew Encounters a UFO by Charles Lear. And that's about the um, the Captain Coyne helicopter case. Fascinating case. It's one of, uh, one of the ones I've really uh, liked reading about how the, uh, the UFO actually lifted the helicopter. That's what they, they figure happened because it, it rose really fast. And uh, anyway, a very scary encounter. So that one uh, is a great blog, and that will be an audio blog. A little late on the last audio blog, but that will be coming along. Um, just a little bit I want to talk about, um, and, you know, it's kind of a negative thing, but I think I should bring it up, and that is, uh, um, you know, people have heard me talk about um, a few different people on this show that uh, I think, you know, should be called out and uh one of them is Dr. Stephen Greer, and he's looking for attention right now. So doing and doing so, he is saying that um, Louis Elizondo is a disinformation agent and uh, Leslie Kane, and he calls her Leslie Keen, and uh, Chris Mellon and all that. They're all in on it. And Sheehan, Sheenan, the uh, lawyer, I believe, uh, I'm, I, I don't remember that part of it right now. But anyway, um, you know, he did wonderful work. Dr. Stephen Greer did wonderful work in the beginning. Um, he was the disclosure guy, the first one that was actually talking about disclosure. And I think there may be a little jealousy out there uh, with him um, because that's what he's pushing, you know, that they are all disinformation and it's a false disclosure. And, you know, he wants to be the disclosure guy. But anyway, um, uh, if you're new and just uh, looking into the UFO field. I'm just going to tell you, stay clear of Greer. Um, so there, maybe he can sue me <laughs> because a lot of people are saying that uh, he's actually looking to get sued by uh, by those people uh, just to get back in the news again and relevant. So uh, um, he can uh, do that to me if you would like to. That's just fine. Anyway, um, that's a little bit of negativity. I hate starting off like that, but I wanted to uh, just uh, address that because um, he doesn't need the limelight to be the Mr. Disclosure guy. Um, these other people that have come along are doing a wonderful job, in my opinion. Anyway, here we go. Our guest uh, was uh, involved uh, on a radar screen. He's got a great background. Um, he's more on the science side, and uh, he was involved in a, a mysterious case over Lake Michigan in that area. And uh, we are going to bring him in right now. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Martin. Yeah. And so, Jack, you actually contacted me, which I thought was uh, very nice. 
And so I looked up, I remember reading the blog and thinking, wow, you know, you watched what was going on. And can you, for the person that's never heard about this particular case, does it have like a, a lot of UFO encounters will have like a name, like the Lake Michigan encounter or uh, does it have any type of name that people call it by that uh, incident? Basically in Michigan, it's called the March 8th, 1994 tor- uh not tornado, but uh, UFO. Uh, I'm used to saying <laughs> tornado, tornado UFO, <laughs> a weather guy. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's what I usually say. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, this uh, this happened on a uh, uh, a very cold year. This is the this was the cold year where Mount Pinatubo uh, erupted the year before. So uh, um, the Great Lakes largely froze over that year. And uh, including Lake Michigan, I had never seen Lake Michigan freeze over completely all the way over, uh, except there was some uh, uh, area um, down towards the south, the southern uh, maybe eighth of uh, of the uh, lake had opened some up open water down there. But otherwise, most of the Great Lakes were ice covered, except for Lake Ontario, maybe. And uh, so it was an unusual winter. Usually in Muskegon, Michigan, we we have uh, due to the uh, warm lakes and the cold air going over the warm lakes. We have snow happening all the time. We have clouds happening all the time throughout the winter. Uh, But in this case, we had uh, uh, which is very, very rare. We have clear skies in the winter uh, with uh, with the uh, Lake Michigan frozen all over and very cold conditions. So without the lake effect. Uh, and uh, so this was a, uh, a very unusual night and uh, extremely cold, high pressure dome. The radar was working uh, perfectly. There was no uh, super refraction of the radar because there's no inversions. And uh, um, so I can debunk that, which is a lot of people have been trying to tell me, but the weather conditions were not right for the super refraction or inversions of the radar. And uh, so and uh, what happened was uh, with the National Weather Service were called quite often by uh, law enforcement all the time. Uh, uh, And this would be the central dispatcher of Ottawa County, which is the county south of the county uh, Muskegon was in. Uh, This is where uh, um, the uh, uh, Grand Haven and Holland uh, is in, in Ottawa County. And uh, they had literally dozens of phone calls coming from the entire county uh, from northeast to southwest in that general line uh, towards and t- going towards Lake Michigan. Uh, now, uh, they uh, what what they did is they sent out a police officer to the very first caller. Uh, and uh, uh, by the time he got there, the UFO had had or I guess UAP, you call it now. Uh, the UIP had uh, been, it was at treetop level, and there was some recording of, you can hear the recordings from them, and you can hear a little child saying, you know, oh my goodness, it's a UFO, you know, as a little four-year-old child saying this. And uh, so, um, but anyway, it was, uh, they say it was near treetop level. At that level, I would not have been able to see 
the object um, due to the curvature of the earth. So and and any ground clutter that might be in the way. So um, uh, so uh, by the time that uh, I was called by uh, the sheriff's department or um, the the sheriff called uh, dispatch or called radioed back to dispatch dispatch call try to call the faa they wouldn't answer this was about nine o'clock at night and so he called uh me uh i was uh on shift alone it was a fair weather night nothing going on in the weather uh the radar was doing its uh, usual rotation as it always does even though there's no weather out there and um he uh uh they asked me well can you see uh, objects in the sky. We have, uh, you know, we have, um, uh, uh, we have story. We have a lot of reports of lights in the sky uh, at treetop level. It's scaring a lot of our citizens. And can you take a look at it? And so, uh, um, knowing that I could actually see, uh, airplanes, I can, I could actually see jumbo jets. And on, on fair weather days, when I was trying to get, proficient at weather radar, I would actually try to spot a, uh, um, a, an airplane. And yes, you can see an airplane with a ra- weather radar. That's why I showed this, had this graphic right here, uh, if you want to put it up sure. there. Uh, Even but, though it's uh, backwards, it's It okay. is backwards. I'm sorry about that. But as you see in the top left-hand side, um, we have... Uh, what FAA radars don't have is we have the capability of determining the type of uh, uh, whether it's a liquid, solid, highly reflective, or basically what it is. And that's what it shows down in the amplitude uh, scale down there. That's basically a measure of the amount of energy coming back. And as you can see um, there on the left, the airplane shows a certain type of signature. Uh, it's saying, uh, it shows a certain type of signature that's similar to the, the building on the right-hand side. Rainfall, on the other hand, uh, shows a signature that's much more fuzzy, and the ground also, a mountain or so on, will have a, a more of a fuzzy appearance. But because this is a high-reflective object, um, it was uh, definitely an airplane. It was moving, not an airplane, but an aircraft, it uh, was moving at, uh, I could detect it moving at a certain speed. It was moving pretty smoothly, about 100 miles an hour. And uh, after about um, uh, one minute of looking at it, uh, um, and I had already known that I could look at uh, fine jumbo jets on radar, I, I would actually point the radar down at, uh, uh, I've always been an aviation buff. I've flown on airplanes all the time and, uh, throughout my life. And, uh, I flew from Fort Lauderdale. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale and I was born in Michigan. So would see my dad in Michigan every summer and winter. So, uh, I was always flying back and forth my entire life. So I knew, uh, Chicago O'Hare airport pretty well. And I knew by pointing the radar over at Chicago here, I would always see jumbo jets flying and taking off and I could follow them. Uh, no problem. And this actually had the same signature as like what a jumbo jet would have. It, it was well off the ground. It was, uh, about 15,000 feet when I first saw it. 
uh, in altitude. And, um, and then it, uh, uh, after watching it move slowly, it started doing some crazy things. It, uh, it split up into three. And, uh, and I, uh, and when I looked at the radar at that point, I have the ability to, unlike an FAA radar, uh, my radar, uh, the radar beam goes out in a cone shape, a round cone shape. And it's generally up at a 0.5 degree level going around. And, you know, the weather radars go around pretty slowly. Uh, uh, the, um, uh, but it's only to look at the bottom part of the atmosphere, usually not. Uh, it's, it's different with the Doppler radar now today. But uh, back, back then, we were only interested in how much rainfall was falling at the bottom part of the atmosphere. So, uh, uh, so I had to, I did have the ability to crank the radar in the vertical position and also take it off automatic rotation and wave the radar back and forth so that I could uh, um, reflect whatever was in the the sky there and i and i would wave it back and forth the radar beam back and forth back and forth up and down up and down because uh the radar beam uh would would be cone shaped and would get larger as you go far away from the uh from the radar and at about that distance the uh the radar beam would be about uh half a mile and so anything within that half mile would bleed together because of the resolution at that at that point but the most uh, energy would be down the center line. And then we consider the uh, beam width as being uh, from the amount of energy at the center to where the half uh, point is of the energy at the side. So at the side, you know, and we would consider that the cone of our radar. And so uh, what, it was telling me was the radar signature was, was uh, that it was a solid object. It was a highly reflective solid object. It was just like an airliner. Now the, the problem was, was that as soon as I started looking at it within a few, I don't know, about 15 seconds uh, to a minute of looking at it, the, uh, the, uh, immediately, uh, I saw it split up into three and it split up into three in a vertical triangle. Uh, it, it, um, it was, it's really hard to explain, but it, it was, there were, uh, about say 50 miles from the radar. There was one object that was, uh, uh, stacked on top of another. One was about 80,000 feet in the air. The other one was down at about 15,000 feet in the air. And then there was a third one that was closer to the radar, uh, but it was making a triangular formation on my vertical scope, the kind where I can see the slice of the cloud or the thunderstorm in the vertical uh, way. And and in order, that's really very, um, uh, it's, a, it's an extreme coincidence because you, in order for that to happen, the objects would have to be directly down the radial of the radar. And it was almost as if it, it was pointing an arrow directly back at my radar. 
it really uh, confused me. And that's when on the 9-11 tape, I said, oh, my God, what is this? Because it was literally, you know, I saw the two objects stacked on top of each other. I saw the third object directly pointing toward the radar, almost looking like uh, the tip of an arrow pointing directly at the radar. Um, So that confused me. Uh, And uh, but at the very same time, the police officer saw the same thing. And uh, in fact, there was another verification of it where there was a report from somebody uh, on the um, on Lake Michigan who saw it. He lived on Lake Michigan and he said that he saw uh, what looked like. Uh, stacked UFOs on one on top of each other at one point. And so that matches pretty much what I saw for a brief moment. Now those other, uh, now in triangular formation in the vertical, it finally flipped and went horizontal. It was all, they, they were all at about the same altitude at about 15,000 feet. And then they kept making a, uh, uh, a triangular formation. So one, uh, the, the closest return would uh, actually uh, move first and it began, it began to move more of a westerly direction towards Lake Michigan. First, it got to the shoreline of Lake Michigan and uh, then they uh, uh, then they be, they became a, a triangular formation that went over uh, a couple. Uh, they uh, two of them were on the shoreline, and the other one was inland a little bit, but making an equidistant um, uh, equidistant triangle of about twenty miles apart from each other, and it was instantaneous. Um, and now, with, though the, the radar that I was sweeping back and forth, if you can imagine, the further way away from the radar you get. The beam is going to be going faster and faster, you know, uh, waving back and forth uh, close by the radar. You know, the beam is going by maybe, I don't know, as I was cranking it back and forth like that, maybe at about 100 miles an hour close to the radar. But if you go way out to where the radar beam is, is being swept, I was sweeping from, say, South Bend, Indiana to Chicago within about a half a second each. So that's thousands of miles an hour. So they were actually able to jump, you know, within that 20 miles within that short amount of period. And, uh, but uh, the people on the ground actually did say they didn't just disappear and then show up. They actually, uh, they actually went from a hover to an extreme uh, uh, acceleration amount of, uh, extreme acceleration and then would uh, deaccelerate and go to another hover uh, 20 miles away. And they kept doing this for, um, uh, for as long as, see, I was, the, I was on their phone call with Ottawa County sheriffs uh, for about uh, 45 minutes describing the mo- uh, movements. And uh, they did it. Uh, these objects did it several times. Uh, where the, the, the main one, it seemed like, or the closest one to the radar would move first. The other two would follow and go into another triangular formation again. And, uh, and then um, 
there was a fourth one that I saw that kind of would come into play every once in a while, but I couldn't really find it or, or keep track of it. I was already really looking at those three uh, that I could see uh, the best. And, uh, but they, uh, uh, instead of moving from say, and this is my map of Michigan, if I do it the right way, uh, where, okay, do I have the Detroit? Okay. Detroit over here by my thumb. And then Muskegon is over here, right in through here. Well, they went from, uh, the, the top, there was sightings in a row from, uh, Houghton, uh, Lake down towards the, south, southwest, towards Holland, Michigan, right down here. But then as soon as I started looking at them, they went out to the middle of, oops, wrong way, uh, middle of Lake Michigan. And uh, so uh, they went to the middle of Lake Michigan, due west of, say, uh, Grand Grand Haven right there. Uh, excuse me, Holland, Michigan right there. And uh, uh, which would be between the letters where you see Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo would be uh, in between those letters. And so they were in the middle of Lake Michigan right there, smack dab in the middle. Lake Michigan at that point is about 80 miles across. So they were 40 miles from Milwaukee and 40 miles from the Lake Michigan shoreline in Michigan. Now, from there, uh, they they kept doing the same thing, uh, uh, only this time the main uh, northernmost point would go to the south, and the other two would follow again, making triangular formation every time it did it. Now, uh, once the um, once the objects moved out of the county and into the middle of Lake Michigan, the sheriff could not see the uh, uh, the objects anymore. Uh, he actually was chasing them with a squad car. And towards the west, and uh, he couldn't keep up with them, of course. And um, uh, but uh, but uh, of course, I could see it on radar and see everything they were doing. And I saw them uh, for uh, uh, they we got off the phone after 45 minutes with Ottawa County. Once they were away from Ottawa County, it seemed like Central Dispatch was not concerned about it anymore. They were out of his airspace. He didn't care anymore, <laughs> but, uh, it was, I had, I had regular duties. I had to do service observations, get something on the weather radio. Uh, and, uh, but every time I came back, I would see these objects and I watched them for two hours. Uh, in mm. fact, I watched them until I left, uh, the office at midnight. Um, the, did you tell the, the person following you? Yes, I did. Yes, mm-hmm. I did. He had no explanation. Uh, he, I was a little embarrassed about what went on. Uh, I had no idea. It didn't even cross my mind that I was being recorded. <laughs> and uh, so uh, um, I did make a short note uh, that I was called by Ottawa County Sheriff to look at something on radar. I saw something and it was moving quite fast uh, and I just threw out a number saying uh, a mile a second, you know, something like that. I just just didn't know. I just had no idea. It was more like, uh, you know, 20 miles in a split second. But, um, hmm. you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't really estimate. It was extraordinarily fast. Um, and uh, so. And also, uh, did it stop fast, too? Yes. Right away. Just stopped on a dime. And uh, 
Uh, so, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, good grief, if there's any people in there, they're going to be a pancake, but from the inertia effect, <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. you know, yeah. and the other thing too, is that once, you know, I was a little, I was pretty relaxed, uh, at the first part of the call, but once the, uh, um, once it started doing these crazy things, I began to get a little nervous about it and, uh, it creeped me out a little bit, but I also wondered if, uh, cause it acted so crazy, uh, after I started looking at it with radar, it was almost as if, you know, you know, that these things were knowing I was looking at it and I was expecting, I mean, I was visualizing the radar getting zapped with some, you know, ultra high energy beam and, you know, my radar console, you know, just going up into fight flames, you know, and so I was thinking about that. I literally was thinking about that. That uh, that uh, they could easily have, have uh, you know, whatever it was. Um, uh, I mean, this was during the uh, Gulf War too, or, or right after. And I know that basically, I was I had a radar lock on these objects. I know that the military could look at uh, at uh, you know see radars that were locked on their aircraft, and they would blow them up uh, these radar sites. So. Um, Obviously, whether military or not, I knew that they were looking at me. Now, um, the thing is, is they made no, uh, whatever these things were, they made no attempt to hide themselves. Uh, they were like saying, hey, we're here, look at us, you know, and that's what it seemed like that whole time, uh, both on radar and by uh, the people that were seeing it on the ground. Um and uh, but the the unusual thing was that the way they uh, were moving, it seemed like they had a direction in mind of which way were they he- they were heading. They took their own sweet time about getting there and kind of looking around. It seemed like they were obviously intelligently controlled um, and uh, they were basically looking around and. Um, but they had a general direction in mind, which is southwest, even though they zigzagged a bit, you know, on the way down there. Now, when I saw them, they went straight due west out to the middle of Lake Michigan, then straight south. And once they got down to the uh, lower part of Lake Michigan, where the only open water in the Great Lakes uh, happened to be, um, and this would be northeast of Chicago, um, uh, they were in the middle and they were clustered together and there were literally dozens of them. And uh, so not just the three and four, there were dozens of them. I don't know where they all came from, uh, but uh, but they wow. looked like it was crazy. They uh, most of them were hovering in place and every once in a while, and And actually, there were a couple that were weaving around the other ones that were stationary. I could see that. Um, and, uh, so, uh, but the fact that they were right over open water, uh, they were at about 10,000 feet or so, uh, there were probably some that were lower than that, but I couldn't see that because it was at the, uh, even though the radar is literally, the radar was literally three miles from the, uh, from Lake Michigan, I would not be able to see, uh, due to the trees, um, 
you know, uh, uh, that too, too low down at that latitude. Uh, but, uh, but I could, I gotta, I gotta look it back up and see what the lowest I would be able to see at that level would be. Uh, but, um, but one thing I did notice is that they did not, uh, for instance, an airliner would, of course, stay at a certain altitude above the earth, the ground, uh, uh, these things went in straight lines. It didn't care if it was uh, the earth was curving out from underneath it or not. They went in a straight line. So when yeah. I saw it at one place, when it jumped to the other place further south where the earth was kind of kind of uh, falling off, you know, uh, underneath it, they were still they were at an increased altitude, meaning they went in a straight line. Uh, wow. regardless of the curvature of the earth. So, so it had um, nothing to do with gravity. It seems like almost it had nothing to do with the curvature of the earth. Now they, they, they said they wanted to go in a straight line. They did, <laughs> you know, so, uh, and, yeah, it, it is. And, um, so, uh, so, uh, but I, I actually watched these things for about two hours and they were there and I just can't think of, you know, of course, a lot of people said, oh, it's got to be military. But, you know, honestly, military, why would military be out in the middle of Lake Michigan for two hours hovering there? You know, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, always and, one of the questions um, yeah. that that you definitely would have to ask. Another one is, uh, you know, uh, why would they do that and not, uh, you know, alert people uh, that they were doing this exercise if they were? And, and one question I had for you, other, do you get to see actually transponders or not when you're no. with, no, no, no. So no, you have, and, and another thing I'm pulling this up. Does, does your weather radar screen look something like this? Uh, it was, uh, um, it, well, yeah, it was similar to that. Now that looks more of a digital, um, yeah. Uh, way now you have to remember our radar was uh, the way the Doppler radars work now, or or the we call the WSR 88D next rad radar. Um, uh, my radar dish was about six feet in width. Uh, the ones now today are thirty feet, thirty five feet in width. But um, uh, what they do to get a three dimensional picture of the atmosphere is they go around once at about a half a degree which is the normal, what we used to do with a 74C radar was go around at a half a degree above altitude. Believe it or not, at just a half a degree altitude is enough to where, you know, you get over to uh, Chicago, as far as Chicago, and you're a couple thousand feet off the ground. Is that right? Wow. Oh, yeah. 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 Now, there is a little bit of uh, sub-refraction. There is a little bit of refraction around the beam. It, the, the radar beam does go uh, around uh, the curvature of the Earth. It's just like looking at a sunset. Where you see the sunset is you're not really looking directly at the sun in a direct line. The sun is actually below the horizon. It just doesn't look like it. It's, it looks like it's above the... And that's just refraction. That's all it is. So the radar beam acts the same way. Now, at different, different uh, weather conditions, it will either super refract and you get anomalous propagation or basically you would start seeing a lot of ground clutter and you'd and ground clutter looks like uh, 
uh, it would look like heavy rain on the ground everywhere. And it would usually be very close to the radar. Um, uh, but uh, a lot of people tried to explain that it was anomalous propagation, but you don't see anomalous propagation looking like dots. You don't look, you know, you, they have the, fuzz, as I said in the graphic, they don't, they're, these were, uh, uh, these are high reflective and they were pegging the top of the of the amplitude chart, meaning that the a lot of energy was coming right back. The, the way the radar works is uh, uh, a few thousand pulses go out every second and uh, and there's short pulses uh, where the radar is actually listening more than they're sending out an EM radiation uh, to, to listen. So it's, it's, it's pulses going out very fast. Um, but they're listening for the echo to come back at light speed. So it's a light speed thing, uh, going, you know, and, uh, so, but, but, but the sweeping, pardon me, the sweeping, how long does it take? You know, I mean, how are you able to determine speeds and, and, and all that? Because how long does a sweep take? Well, I, I took it off the automatic mode. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, with with the radars back then, uh, we had to if we wanted to look at one thunderstorm, we and would see if there was hail in there, see if there was any uh, possible tornado or something like that. We had to take it off automatic rotation mode, and we would point it at a thunderstorm, and we would use another crank. We had two cranks, one to actually be able to go wave the radar in the horizontal back and forth and another one to to crank the radar uh both uh, up and down in a vertical spot so it's like if you can imagine uh unlike a faa radar where they do the entire atmosphere in one sweep uh we're just a little cone at that period um and uh so uh whereas they're using like a big floodlight that is like you know 90 degrees wide and going around they really can't see the altitude of objects without a transponder now uh now i we could our radar beam was more direct it was more uh it was narrower and uh at that time um you know, we only cared at the, how much rain was falling at the ground level. And so, uh, uh, but, uh, we had to look for hail up at the top of the, uh, the thunderheads to whether to or not to issue uh, severe thunderstorm warnings for that. And, um, and so, uh, so, so we had the ability to have to read the signatures of the radar to know what we're looking at. How heavy is the rain? shows one signature, uh, whether there's hail shows another signature, whether it's anomalous propagation or ground clutter uh, has another uh, signature on that amplitude chart. And uh, if you're looking at an airplane, uh, it has a different signature. Um, And so these had the signature of an aircraft and not a, not a, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 an aircraft that has, uh, any kind of ability to, uh, uh, be invisible to radar. It didn't have stealth capability. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they were as about as reflective as can be. Um, I How mean, literally were- they, they were, uh, they were flying tin cans, you know, that's <laughs> all I could say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how many witnesses do you think there were 
overall. Um, and was there any other radar information, FAA or anything? Did you ever find out if there was any other information of people recording this? I uh, actually did. Uh, we had a hotline. Uh, we were at the Muskegon County Airport, and I had a lot uh, hotline to the uh, – you just pick up the phone, and immediately I go to the tower. And uh, so the FAA, were, we, we were U.S. government personnel. They were federal employees as well, of course. And so uh, 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 so we worked together really well. Um, and so I called them, told them what happened. And I said, we were getting a lot of phone calls about, or Ottawa County is getting a lot of phone calls about lights in the sky. Um, and I could actually see it on my radar did you see anything to the south of you? And he and the FAA air traffic controller at that point said, well, he said, yeah, I saw three aircraft in formation, but for some reason I couldn't see it on my radar, which means they had no transponder on it. Oh, I see. And, uh, and so, uh, and so that was it. Uh, I had to, uh, there was a, uh, scientist from West Michigan University. It was a paranormal scientist. He came up and he wanted to interview us. And I had to borrow a, a, an overhead projector. It's the 90s. We didn't have the internet and all that yet. Was that uh, Mike, Mike Walsh? Uh, that, that was the reporter. Uh, oh, his, I see. This, this, his name was Dr. Swords. Swords. And, oh, Swords, uh, yes. Swords, yes, yep. Dr. Swords. And so he came up and I gave him a presentation uh, with my boss's uh, graces and uh and I gave a presentation with with my boss and dr swords and um and so anyway, when I went over to get the overhead projector, I had to borrow one from the f a a control tower they had one in their storeroom so but i as I was uh, going up the elevator in the uh, f a a control room uh, or f a a control elevator um I told the, you know, I'm young. I was excited about what I saw. Um, I asked the FAA person on the, on the, uh, in the elevator. I said, I'm the one that was the UFO radar operator. Uh, and I said, what do you think? And he, he looked at me dead in the eye and he had, it was completely expressionless and said, I can't talk about it. Hmm. And it was kind of ominous. And, uh, you know, and I found that later when I was uh, I worked at the uh, FAA for not F, not as an employee of the FAA, but as the National Weather Service employee, uh, the FAA does air, air traffic controllers at the FAA um, do uh, employ weather service employ uh, meteorologists. And I worked at one for about 30 days. And uh, before they, uh, my boss, when I first, first couple of days, uh, you know, get in the building and there's, then there's another, first you got to get in the gate, you know, and then you got to get into the building. And then there's a room in the center um, and you can't get in there with this without the proper uh, key card uh, identification. And before he opened the door, he said, whatever you see and whatever you hear, you cannot mention outside this office and outside this room. And so never have, never will. Uh, and But I did joke. I said, you mean like, what, you see UFOs or something? And he just kind of uh, shrugged. 
you know, like, well, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> wow. And uh, so uh, then he opened the door and I couldn't can't say anything else about it. So we're all getting trouble. So I, I, I uh, yeah. Well, um, but that's the way they are. Yeah, I know the, you know, I think of the O'Hare case. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Uh, Gate C-17, 2006, I think it was, uh, where that UFO was right over the tarmac and then shot mm-hmm. up and left a hole in the clouds. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Remember FAA, that. you know, they cannot, you know, there's no word that comes out of the FAA when it comes to these. No, things. no. And even the guy said, I remember him saying specifically, even if I did see it, I wouldn't say anything about it. And that is a true statement. They won't. I wonder why. I wonder why. Because it's there may be things in the sky that they have no control of and could be a safety issue. It's a possibility. I have no idea. Nothing was ever explained to me, Um, you know, nor, you know, and that's the truth, Uh, you know, but uh, um, I don't know. I didn't. The thing about being a scientist is, is I really did not want anybody to know about this. Uh, I was initially excited about it, but once I saw the reactions from other scientists in the agency, um, I, I was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to say anything anymore about this. How do you feel now? Uh, well, I feel vindicated. All these, uh, Navy people are coming out and saying, yeah, we're seeing them every day we go out and fly. And so, and the thing is, is the radar operators and although they haven't, they haven't uh, interviewed any radar operators that I've seen yet in the Navy. Uh, but, uh, but the reports coming out are exactly the same as what I was saying 30 years ago about what these things were doing. Yeah. And so I do feel vindicated about this because it was a bit of, you know, I felt like I was losing credibility if I talked about this. And as a scientist, you do not want to lose credibility. Sure. And uh, I um, uh, and and even with people and even today, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, I was doing this podcast Uh and and, (laughs) and a program. And, And so and there's. There's people that make jokes, but the uh, and I don't mind jokes, but uh, in the weather service, they weren't joking around. They just, you know, they're scientists. They just look at you like you're, you know, you know, yeah, I don't want to I mean, talk about it. All right. So that that uh, there's a couple of questions that came in, but I'd like to ask them for these people here. But that that just. That that baffles me just because wouldn't wouldn't you want to have an answer? You know, I mean, oh, you see oh, something yeah. like that. Yeah, wouldn't absolutely. any scientist want to have an answer with what you experienced? Absolutely. And I and I you know, don't think that I haven't been thinking about this for 30 years. And I've I have uh, in my own time. Now, my family has heard all about it, you know, but, uh, you know, and I and actually I have a son that's going to Georgia Tech as a and he's a physics major and he wants to be an aerospace engineer. And mm-hmm. so uh, he does not. He says, do not put my name out there with this because I don't I want to get a job. You know, so he he wow. does not want to be anywhere near this. He he's actually skeptical 
Uh, and I say, well, well, then what do you think I saw? You know, and he knows I'm telling the truth. I've been talking about it to the family since for 30 years, you know, uh, but, uh, but I would not talk about it. I, it, 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 I thought about it so much. It gave me headaches. I would look through, pour through the radar manuals and, uh, pour through other, uh, stories that were coming out. Um, and, uh, you know, I tried to, uh, you know, a lot of people would say, well, it's, um, it's a, uh, you know, the, the uh, military aircraft are sending out false signals, radar jamming, but it doesn't match up then, which I almost bought, except it doesn't match up with uh, the, uh, the police officer's observations himself and the other people, uh, the other citizens of the county uh, speaking up. So... Right. Um, and you have to remember the the National Weather Service is a an agency that has constant uh, communication with the media. So we're not given any we're not privy to anything top secret. The only thing that's top secret with us would be a somebody a coworker's social security number, and that's it. I mean, we we put out all our data out on the internet. It all the raw data goes out. Um, when I did my shows, um, they, the only thing the weather service was concerned about was that they don't want to be, the weather service did not want to become the UFO reporting center, you know, <laughs> and I can understand that. I, I really can. Mm-hmm. Cause we did have a few drunk guys that would see the planet Venus and, you know, say it's moving. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. When they're moving, uh, we have a, a question up there. Was each target jumbo size, uh, jumbo jet size in your opinion? Uh, yeah, uh, they were, uh, they had about, uh, you have to realize too, is that the further away from the radar, the larger the beam goes, that the cone goes wider and wider. So, uh, they take up uh, less of a space of the cone. So the one that was closest to the radar looked bigger because it took out more of the cone, but the ones further away uh, took up less of the of the uh, cone. So they look smaller, but most likely they were the same size because when they did move further and further away from the radar, they did seem to have that same getting smaller and smaller look to it. Uh, and even the jumbo jets that I was looking that I would look at and spot at, uh, O'Hare airport would be pretty small. Uh, they would be pretty weak signals and they would be pretty small. Uh, but this, this would be the first time that I saw something as large as a jumbo jet, uh, so close to the radar, uh, because there's just not many jet airliners in that area of the country, uh, at, uh, 15 to 30,000 feet that, uh, that really, that are going over our airspace. Grand Rapids, Michigan is the big airport there and they don't, they just don't have jets that take off, but every maybe once in a ha- every half hour back then. So, uh, I knew with the uh, constant flow of airplanes going in and out of O'Hare that I'd be able to see something. And I did, I picked up, I could pick up the bigger airlines. Um, yeah. So. Did uh, the National UFO Reporting Center uh, look into this? Do you know if anyone, uh, if they got involved, Peter Davenport? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, they did. I, I actually, there was a number. Um, I didn't, I'm, you know, I didn't know. Uh, it was on our phone list uh, on our computer. And um, it, it said MUFON. And that, well, and actually it said National Re- UFO Reporting Center. Yeah, New and Force. so yeah. I thought it was part of my job to actually call them when I saw something. So I did left a message. And um, uh, in reality, it was really for us meteorologists to tell people that call in with UFO reports to say, <laughs> <laughs> you know, call this number. Uh, so did you get in trouble me. for that? Did you get in no, trouble? not at all. They, they knew they, they said uh, this number. The, the reason why Jack called them is because it's on our computer saying National UFO Reporting Center. So, uh, you know, I was following what I thought was proper procedure. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, as far as I know, at that point, uh, I was the only one, I was the only weather service employee to ever see uh, and report a UFO on radar before. Uh, Now, uh, there are a lot of weird anomalies on radars now, but the kind of, the kind of objects that I could see, um, with today's radar, with it being digital and, um, uh, and with the way they, they operate now, I, I, you, they're, they're automatic. You can't take them off automatic mode. You can't manipulate the radar. Yeah, no, it, it, it does. It'll go, uh, it'll go around once at a half a degree. It'll go up a half a degree, go around again, go up a half a degree, go around again, go up, you know, and so they get a three dimensional picture of the atmosphere that way. And, um, and so they're always on the move. And, and then by the time they get way up to the top at their top angle, they just come right back down. They start all over again, going, you know, uh, going around. Now we're getting, you know, supposedly phase array radars coming where we'll be able to do the entire atmosphere in one, uh, in one shot, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully that'll be soon. So, uh, our users don't have to wait a few minutes to see the most updated radar. Um, yeah. you know, now what was the aftermath like for you? Like to say, uh, like immediately after, and then after, you know, and then until you retired, uh, I was, I was scared. Um, I, it didn't even occur to me that it was on, that it was being recorded. Uh, I don't mm. know why I just didn't, didn't think about it. And so, um, uh, evidently what happened was there were some people that were on police band radios. They heard it. And, uh, and so they immediately went down to the 911 center and through the freedom of information act, they, they got a copy of the cassette with some of the, uh, many of the uh, people that called in the, uh, uh, the UFO reports, the citizens, and and then my entire phone call uh was 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 on that tape and uh so um you know sure i lost my cool a little bit when i said oh my god what is this but um you know the police officer was was excited as well otherwise it would have been you know i mean you know, I, I, I was 
I was less excited about tornadoes than I was. I mean, I mean, you know, of course I'm, you know, I'm more focused on tornadoes than, than UFOs or anything like that. But I, I yeah. was more creeped out about this and, you know, and then when you get into severe thunderstorm and tornado mode, you're, you've already practiced enough. You know what, exactly what to do. Uh, uh, but, um, this was, uh, just a, you know, just a wrong place at the wrong time kind of thing. And, and it just so happened to happen to me. Um, now, but, you- uh, but yeah, it, 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 uh, I moved, uh, I was, I was considered a graduate intern at that point. Uh, I was supposed to be a GS five, seven, nine, and then out as a 12, 11, 12 to get a, a journeyman forecaster job. But, uh, we were undergoing, uh, modernization and restructuring. So there was a delay in that program. And so I was stuck there as well as thousands of other meteorologists, um, uh, waiting for the modernization to complete. So we were all kind of jammed waiting for us. We were considered graduate interns waiting to get our finalists or our next assignment, which would mean that we were forecasters at that point. And they, they actually did shut the Muskegon County, uh, the Muskegon, uh, radar or Muskegon radar and the Muskegon National Weather Office and Grand Rapids, uh, weather office took over our responsibilities. Um, but they went from 400 to about, uh, 150 offices, uh, in that, in those early nineties, uh, year, uh, decade. And so, uh, but, um, uh, you know, but, uh, I, at that point, um, yeah, I was excited about it. I was nervous about it. And I just so happened to be, uh, uh, taking a trip the next week. It was March. So it was cold. And I was looking forward to going back to Florida to see my mother and with, with my wife. And, uh, um, and so, you know, it was a little ominous when I left and I was gone for a, a few weeks, but, um, but everybody was calling, asking, you know, what was going on. But when I would talk to, uh, the people, uh, generally I would get that look and I'm sure you know what that look is, uh, where, and it was about 50, 50%, I would say at that point, uh, 50% would look at you like, you know, you're nuts, you know, and, uh, the other 50% were pretty well, um, interested. They were like, Oh, tell me all about it. You know? Yeah, and, I, I feel uh, I find that's true. I hate to say this, but we ran out of time. I can't believe it went oh, so sure. fast. And uh, I remember mentioning to can you want to be on for two hours? I should have had you on for two hours. But anyway, okay. you've been great. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it a lot. It's an amazing story, and and um, I I'm glad that you are talking about it, and uh, you feel more comfortable to talk about it. Thank you thanks so much. so much, Jack. Sure. All right. No you problem. Take care. Thank you. Bye. All right. So now uh, I recorded a clip with uh, my friend Dave Marler, and I'm going to play that for the break. So hang in there over at KGRA Radio. We'll be right back right after these messages. Hey, David. Uh, Thanks so much for uh, joining us for this little break in the show that we have uh, on a weekly basis. I appreciate it. So you have some guests there in your little, uh, what do I want to call it, your archives? Is that what you would call it, the UFO archives? Archives, I think really any of those – 
titles really fit the bill. I mean, we're doing a lot of uh, historical research this weekend and uh, have some vis- visiting researchers, as you mentioned. And just real quick, I can kind of show you what they're doing here. Yeah. So, so the flip around. Oh, hey, everyone. And of course, and you know, there's Charles Lear. That's our blog, the blogger for Podcast UFO and audio blogger that you hear each, each uh, week here on YouTube. And, and we have Barry, uh, Barry from Roth. Barry. I'm sorry, Barry Roth from Colorado. Welcome, welcome to the show. Have you ever heard of our show before? You could say no if you haven't. I have. No, I've heard of your show before. <laughs> That's good. That was that was a true test right there. <laughs> so let's take a uh, yeah. let's take a walk around. Look at those beautiful. Wait a minute. I want to go back to the bookcases just because oh, yeah. I know those are lawyer bookcases, the stack ones. Yes. Did those come out of? Uh, out of one place, they must have. I've had to acquire those over a period of years as I continue to grow the library. And then, of course, we got the very end there. We have floor-to-ceiling bookcases. Yeah, those but, come in the stacks. You can take the stacks down or, or build them up. Yeah, Absolutely. And over here, though, real quick, we have the studio area where I do my uh, podcasts with various shows. But also, we're doing digitization work. And you can see the reel-to-reel there. Uh, working on the historic nightcap audio recordings. And that's uh, uh, one I'm getting ready to do an uh, uh, interview with a 1966 eyewitness. So lots of, lots of digitization work. We're going to have another one where we'll have two workstations set up to digitize video as well as uh, audio. And then over here we have uh, Project Blue Book memorabilia. I don't think I have time to get into all that, but you can kind of see some of the original materials from Project Blue Book that I've gathered over the years. In addition, I might add to the files of Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Um, but we also have uh, original front page historic newspapers. That's from Farmington. You can see many of the others. Photographs and publications. Just walking wow. down the aisle here. And then as we work our way this direction, you know, we have more bookcases. We like to call this side the library room for obvious reasons. And then as we work our way over this direction, this is what we call the files. And here we have microfilm the X Files. The oh, oh th- this is the real X Files, Martin. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this is fact, not fiction. And here you can see Charles. He's actually going through some material right now. Actual Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book photographs, right there from oh, the original Project Blue Book materials from Lieutenant Carmen Morano. And so he's going through that. And then over here we have some of the historic Nightcap Kufos case files. And so you can see we have quite a few file cabinets down this entire stretch, even getting around Charles there and uh, lots of historical material that I've been able to gather over the years. And these drawers are filled with tons of material. And as I mentioned earlier, including microfilm, amazing reels and reels of microfilm, each comprising hundreds of pages of government documents, as well as news clippings on the subject matter. Wow. This is fascinating. We're out of time, though, David. But hey, thanks so much for uh, showing us the uh, bird's eye or drones drones eye view here. Happy to. Thank you, Martin. All right. Take care. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is Martin Willis, and my guest now is Ian Rogers up in Canada. We're going to be talking about a really uh, very uh, well. Uh, as I said before, spoiler alert: it's a hoax. But it's a it's an amazing uh, situation, and it caused a big stir in its day. And welcome to the show, Ian. Hi, Martin. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. And I watched the 
uh, UFO town because I was lucky enough to get the screener and I didn't realize that in the States you can't actually watch that yet, but you may be able to at some point, right? Yeah, there, uh, it was made, it was produced for, uh, CBC, Canadian television, but they're in the process of, uh, settling into other territories right now, including, uh, the United States. So hopefully, uh, you'll be able to see it very soon. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I, I was able to watch it now. I, I guess the takeaway from that is, uh, there's still a lot going on around in the, and there was in the beginning, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting case. I mean, I think I mean, obviously, that's why the uh, the people that made UFO Town decided to do a documentary about it. Um, on the surface, you've got this uh, the Guardian case itself, which has been featured on Unsolved Mysteries, etc. But it's based on uh, an existing series of UFO sightings in that area in the West Carlton area um, from the late 1980s to the early 1990s. <laughs> Sorry about my cat. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it was a whole bunch of sightings. What, what was what sort of um, gave a lot of credibility to the Guardian case initially was before um, the figure who called himself Guardian was sending out material. Uh, there was already reports in the local newspapers of UFO sightings independent of Guardian, um, even reports of uh, strange beings being seen in people's backyards. So there there was a, a precedent for it before Guardian even started sending out material. Oh, how about that? You know, I'm looking in your background mm -hmm. at your books. Oh my God. How many books do you have? And I'm, I'm in the process of moving and I can't stand moving. Um, and, um, there's easily a couple thousand. You can, there's also more yeah. shelves over there and shelves. I'm a, I'm a writer. So I mean, uh, it's oh, wow. that I'm kind of uh, surrounded by books. I call it yeah. my, uh, my fallout shelter down here because uh, I could survive, you know, they're <laughs> 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 best, you know, minus yeah. of course, but, uh, yeah, yeah, lots, lots to read. Yeah, yeah. How about that? Um, so let's talk about the. I don't know. Do you do you call it the? Uh, I saw it called the uh, Carp uh, Aunt uh, Ontario uh, mm -hmm. case or something like that. Also, the Guardian, mm -hmm. the Guardian VHS. What is the proper name for that? Um, you know what? I've just heard it referred to as the Carp case or the Carp Guardian case. I mean, uh, when, yeah. once you say Carp and Guardian, people usually know what you're talking about. It's a pretty infamous case because. Uh, it, um, I mean, even beyond ufology, it was featured on the uh, Unsolved Mysteries program back in the uh, early 90s, which was obviously a very, very popular TV show. It's uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. I think it still holds up. Um, all the old episodes are, uh, are available on, U on YouTube right now. And my wife and I have actually been going back and rewatching them. And I'm having a lot of uh, uh, nostalgic feelings of when my sister and I used to watch them and how creeped out we used to be by the uh, even just the theme music. And um, as kids, not even really being aware of the presence of Robert Stack dressed up in his sort of uh, Elliot Ness Untouchables outfit. I didn't really aware. I wasn't really aware that he was sort of vamping on that at the time. But of course, now um, older, um, I've got a, like a new appreciation for it. And uh, um, Guardian obviously stuck out to me because I was always interested in UFOs. But the the cases in Canada, there there weren't a lot of really notable ones. So Guardian really struck a tone with me because it was a case that was not just taking place a couple of hours from where I live, but it was so unusual. I mean, uh, this yeah, let's... figure sending out videotapes of alleged UFO landings. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this up on the screen for the, those yeah. of you on uh, Twitch, Facebook, and YouTube. You can watch it. And uh, anyway, here it is. It goes right here, but we can talk about. So a lot of people may not know exactly what we're talking about, but when they see this video, they'll say, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Oh yeah, um, because when I first started looking into this, you know, topic in general, 
I was mesmerized by this one mm-hmm. and, and ends up being nothing exciting. Yeah, but you know, but it's a spooky tape. I mean, like I said, the yeah. the context of watching this on Unsolved Mysteries, and you're thinking that this this unknown figure recorded this in someone's farm f- farmer's field, um, and then was sending them out sort of anonymously. It, it's 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 kind of a spooky spooky uh, circumstance. And uh, I've said this to death, but I mean, it, it really is. The whole case is like a movie. You know, you've got this mysterious figure, like whether or not he's a a uh, total nut job or a, or a government insider, you don't really know, right? I mean, you don't know anything about him except his his uh, his sort of nom de plume guardian, and he he put his thumbprint uh, on uh, on his videotapes, and he would send these out with a bunch of material. Uh, thumbprint, really? Government documents and photographs and stuff, and and they weren't great. That was the reason why UFO investigators, even even before the unsolved mysteries coverage, didn't really take Guardian very seriously. The even as far as forgeries go, the the so-called um, Department of National Defense documents that he included with the videotape were really poor quality. It was more like what what someone thought government documents looked like from like an episode of the X Files. You know, they just it just it didn't even look like there was a lot of effort when there. There were spelling mistakes in them. Countries that are mentioned in the documents are spelled wrong. So oh, it's uh, so again, it's just it's it's hard to believe that 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 people actually believed it. And and then people, some people still believe it to this day, you know. But but as I always say, there's people that still think the Blair Witch Project is a real movie about three kids who got lost in the woods, you know. So people, yeah. um, it's a compelling story. And anytime you've got a mystery. Um, with 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 a supposed answer, you're always going to have a, a segment of the public who thinks, um, well, that's deceptive. You know, like that's actually not the truth. That's what they want us to believe, right? So you sort of yeah. you go down that rabbit hole of conspiracies where even when you get answers, um, you don't always trust those answers. You know, it's the it's like the uh, this government report. I think it's the Navy report that's supposed to be coming out next month that everyone's all really excited about. They think it's going to be this big disclosure, but. I'm not really, I'm interested to see it, but I'm not really holding out much hope about what it's going to be because this has sort of been the carrot that they've been dangling in front of UFO investigators and, and people, you know, UFO believers and everyone for, for years, you know, like it goes all the way back to close encounters of the third kind when people felt that this was, you know, the government's way by way of Hollywood to indoctrinate the public and prepare them for the, the big news that aliens are real and they're here. They've, they've, they've said this over the years that, Oh, the big disclosure is coming. It's coming any day now. So yeah, like, again, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens next month with this report, but I'm not really holding out much hope that it's going to be, yep. Aliens are real. They've been visiting for a while. Yeah. I don't think so either. And it may not, we may, it may be delayed anyway. I mean, a lot of people yeah. are thinking that um, they mean, may need more time yeah but but still no no i get that so um can you like for the person that's never heard about this kind of explain from the beginning did someone receive this tape in the mail or something like that was yeah yeah. i'll try and break it down for you pretty quick it's um what basically what happened was in um 1989 um, this figure named guardian started sending out um kind of like a uh, a report, I guess you would say. It was a two-page report that was talking about a UFO retrieval in the uh, West Carlton area of Ontario, which is um, near Ottawa. About, it's about 30 minutes um, uh, west of Ottawa. So um, accompanying this report was a photocopy of a 
image that's supposed to be an alien, I guess, like sort of like a gray style alien. Um, except it's almost like from like a side view where you can almost see what very clearly looks like the strap of a mask. But you almost wonder why he would send that picture and not like a front on shot because this wasn't very convincing as far as evidence goes. And even the, uh, the report, um, there was no way to really corroborate it. Um, they did send up, uh, it was either MUFON Ontario or QFORN, I can't remember, sent up an investigator just sort of to, to check it out and see if there was anything to it because it was talking about a large military presence to retrieve this craft from, from the swamps of this rural area. Um, mm-hmm. there, would have been, there would have been evidence of that activity. Um, it's not a highly populated area, but there are people that live up there. So um, the investigator spoke to a few people and no one except for, I think, one or two people claimed that they saw anything except for like a bright light, but certainly no military presence, much less the kind of presence that would be required to extricate a, extricate a craft from from uh, from the swamp. So people, the, the government or the uh, the UFO investigators at the time sort of just dismissed it and moved on. Um, then in 1991, um, early 1992, um, Guardian came back with more material. Um, and this time there was a videotape. And it's the tape that you uh, that you just showed there. So again, there wasn't really a lot of precedence to sort of take Guardian seriously. But because there was more material and now there was like a map of the area that he included and this videotape and because he had sent it a lot more broadly, um, investigators, um, uh, I wouldn't even say they took it seriously, but they decided to um, send a, a larger team of people up there um, from UFON Ontario, people like uh, Drew Williamson and Tom Theophanis, uh, Errol Bruce Knapp. Um, they all went up there with um, an American investigator named Bob Exler, who also had received um a copy of the tape in his home in uh, Maryland. So this was sort of like a joint U.S. American team that went up to this area, um, and uh, part of the case was obviously trying to figure out who Guardian was. You know, there was there was no indication that he wanted to have any contact. Obviously, he's using a he's using a fake name. Um, there's no return address on the packages, so um, it was. Um, Bob Exler's idea to um, use his media contacts to do a segment on Unsolved Mysteries to try to get Guardian um, exposed, more or less, mm-hmm. because Unsolved Mysteries has got like a tip line. Um, it was kind of like the precursor to America's Most Wanted, right? There was a, there was there, you know, there was obviously a criminal component to uh, Unsolved Mysteries. It wasn't just ghosts and monsters. Um, there there was this hotline, and uh, someone did call in claiming that they knew who Guardian was. That there was a a, a local. Um, who was big into UFOs and he'd actually used the name guardian in the past. Um, the investigators at the time tried to uh, um, get this person to speak to them and he just didn't want to have anything to do with them. Like he wouldn't even deny that he was guardian. He just wouldn't speak to them um, at all, which of course only makes him seem <laughs> much more suspicious. Of course mm-hmm. um, it was just such an unusual case. I mean, you've got this cast of characters, you've got major, um, major television coverage, uh, other TV shows um, covered it as well, like sightings and uh, encounters. Uh, if you remember those TV shows on Fox back in the, uh, in the nineties, uh, it was a big time for UFOs, right? I mean, it was, I would even say the nineties was kind of like the second Renaissance of UFOs between X-Files and Independence Day and the mm-hmm. alien autopsy tape and 50th anniversary of the Roswell incident. I mean, UFOs are really prominent in the pop culture. Um, but after uh, this, the, I guess you would call him the guardian suspect, refused to really have anything to do with the investigators and no more material was forthcoming from Guardian. The investigation more or less hit a, hit a standstill. There was really nothing that anyone could, could do with this. You know, uh, uh, Bob tried to uh, find more people to corroborate his encounter 
And um, the Canadian investigators really felt like he was trying to create a narrative out of it. They didn't like his investigative method, the methods. They didn't like the way that he was trying to um, sort of mold other people's um, sightings or experiences and connect them to the Guardian case, even though they didn't. Um, one of the people in the uh, UFO Town documentary, um, she was on, I think, the Encounters um, program, um, came right out and said that, you know, she had this encounter. She saw something in the air at that time. But she didn't have, you know, she didn't have anything to do with the Guardian case. She, she wasn't in that area. It wasn't during that time when Guardian made that tape. But on the show, um, they spun it like it like it did, you know, in, in the wow. way in these shows sometimes do. So, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of animosity between um, the Canadians and, and Bob Exler, who they felt was really trying to sort of monetize this case. He, he was he really wanted to uh, write the book and sell the book. And whenever there was media coverage, he wanted to be the one by himself on these programs. It's just it sort of um, it sort of muddied the waters of the case. You know, it's sort of uh, if there was a legitimate phenomenon there between um, Exler's sort of questionable investigative methods and um, sort of the bad blood between both groups of investigators, it kind of just ruined any real chance to explore what could have been a legitimate phenomenon taking place in West Carlton in the late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how did this actually get broken down into like figuring out what it was? Well, the funny thing is, is that um, it's actually not mentioned in the UFO time documentary because again, it's just, it's a, it's a 45 minute documentary and there's so many disparate threads that you sort of have to focus on one and not get into all these various tangents, even though they all tell the whole story. But the RCMP was actually involved in the case at one point. Um, one of the uh, witnesses who was working with Bob Exler had um, uh, talked to them about low-flying helicopters in the area because the RCMP does not investigate UFOs. So their way, uh, Exler's way of trying to bring them into the investigation and a way of sort of making it seem legitimate, it was a way for him to sort of look at me, I'm working with the government on this, was to have them investigate the helicopter component because helicopters are not allowed, not allowed to fly below a certain, uh, I think it's like 500 feet. Um, so there was an RCMP investigation into this. They sent out an investigator. And because the low-flying helicopters, which were seen sometimes in conjunction with the UFO sightings, was, was tied into the case so much, this constable almost inadvertently kind of had to investigate the UFO case as well. And he became convinced after speaking to a lot of experts who looked at the tape. Um, there, there was a lot. I mean, it's on a flight path. There's a military base out there. Um, he became convinced that it was a um, night exercises, that it's a helicopter on the tape with um, with flares that they use for um, night exercises. Um, the only problem with that is um, the types of flares that they use um, are not like the red burning flares. These are just like simple road flares. The, the flares that they use in the night exercises are actually infrared flares that only show up when they're using infrared night vision goggles, which is the mm-hmm. point of the night exercises. They try to hover... Um, as close to the ground without landing in some of these exercises. It's, it's the purpose of those kinds of uh, a type of training. Mm. Um, there was a lot more um, support towards the idea that the people um, who claimed to have seen the, had the UFO landing on their property were involved in a hoax. Um, there was, um, if you look at some frames of the, of the, of the videotape and it's hard. I mean, it's not a first generation videotape. This is a video from 
like again from the early 90s this is not this is long before hd you know the mm-hmm. quality that we get on our phones but there are a lot of shots where it looks just like, like a truck basically like a pickup truck at an angle um it's it's also worth noting that one of the uh, ufo investigators tom theophanis um ran a uh, windshield repair company for for a time. So this is a guy who knows what windshields look like, you know, and he was able to pretty much identify it to a type of truck that um, was owned by one of the people who was suspected of um, hoaxing this thing. So again, it's, um, I mean, I don't want to say that it was definite. I mean, short of having signed confessions from the hoaxers, which you're never going to get. I mean, in the in the minds of the people that were very seriously investigated, myself included, we're all pretty convinced that it was a hoax. Um, we're pretty sure we know who did it. I mean, I don't want to name them because I mean it's a privacy thing. There, nothing comes from 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 naming these people, but um, the fact yeah. that nothing else really came from that time and, and Guardian was never heard from again. Um, sort of says to me that there wasn't really anything there, at least in terms of what Guardian was reporting. Um, I just think it's really too bad because it definitely seemed like, um, as you see in the UFO Town documentary, people were seeing stuff in that area. There were a lot of sightings, many sightings, independent of, of Guardian and, and what you would call um, a wave, you know, a UFO wave from, I would say, 88 to 93, 94. Um, hmm. I wish that more attention had been focused on that. Um, and rather than trying to chase this this uh, guardian suspect around, even though I can totally understand why they did. Again, it's a very compelling case, right? I mean, it's yeah. it really is like you're in a movie and you're trying to track down this UFO whistleblower, like something right out of the X-Files. Yeah. I'm surprised in a way that after all this time, the person hasn't said, hey, guess what? It was me. But I mean, a lot of, a lot of they would really have to have a lot of information before they could just come forward, I would think. They would have to say, you know, where they were exactly and, you know, all that, uh, I would imagine. Well, I'm still surprised. The the, the person that was suspected um, was contacted to be part of the documentary. He chose not to. But after speaking with him, we are now just generally he had nothing to do with it. I mean, for for various reasons, Um, why why he just didn't say that at the time. There's also some reasons about that in terms of maybe uh, mental capacity. But uh, I'm firmly believe that this person had nothing to do with it. And I was the one that for years was like, yeah, the same thing. Why doesn't this guy just say something even as a hoax? I mean, it's not like he's going to be charged with anything. There was no crime committed. Um, but even the, the, the people who, um, who I do believe were involved, um, they're still around and they're active on social media. And it's not a coincidence that they've moved into um, kind of the scarier um, forms of conspiracy, the sort of very right wing QAnon stuff, which if you read the guardian documents, it's like the precursor to that. I mean, it's, uh, they're spooky. I mean, they're, they're racist. Um, they're, they promote a certain brand of white supremacy. Like it's, you, you, you go into the conspiracy, um, rabbit hole and it starts with, um, you know, uh, aliens and, um, you know, you know, JFK assassination. And then it starts to get, um, almost creepy. I mean, this is what I was saying about the X-Files, the X-Files, um, conspiracies on that program. They're almost quaint by the conspiracies of today's standards. I mean, back then it was just the, the government covering up crashed UFOs. Now it's like, was nine 11 an inside job, you know, and, um, are people, are, are the government trying to kill us through, uh, vaccines or tracking us and stuff? It's, um, I don't think there would be an X-Files show today because it wouldn't be entertaining. It would be too, it would literally be too scary. I don't think anyone wants to watch that program. You know, it's, uh, uh, this is what I mean when I say that the, the conspiracy of the X-Files were almost, um, quaint uh, in their time. You go back at them and it was like, it was very clearly deline- delineated lines between good and evil. And now it's, um, 
it's like we've all become the most paranoid Mulder self, you know, where who do you, you <laughs> trust? No one. You can't trust anyone. You can't trust your government. You're, you're, yeah. you're not supposed to trust your doctor. You know, it's just, it's, uh, um, it's a spooky place. So um, I'm not surprised that uh, when we uh, try to track down the people that we thought um, were responsible for the hoax, that um, they're still very active in the conspiracy world. And now they, they lean very, very hard towards the spooky, <laughs> the spooky kind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm off of social media for, for the most part, I do a little bit of Twitter, but yeah, I mean, the conspiracies are, are kind of uh, uh, hard to take after a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. So let's talk about what else has happened in that area. What, what makes, and, and would you say that that area is still a hot spot and, and where is it geographically exactly? Yeah, it's um, it's in eastern Ontario. It's about uh, it's called West Carlton, and that's sort of the region that encompasses towns like Carp, which is where the UFO incident, uh, sort of the Guardian mm-hmm. incident, took place. Uh, Carlton Place, uh, Almont, or some of these other small towns. Uh, it, it's a rural, like a farming community, but uh, it's kind of actually exploded in the past uh, thirty years. Uh, I remember when when we went up for the to film the documentary. There's a lot of places where it's still the same six houses along the road. And then you go down a street and there's a housing development there where there used to be like a field. So it's uh, it has exploded in a lot of ways, but in other ways, it's still uh, it's still very rural. Um, it's still very picturesque. It's a beautiful place. Um, I have not heard of any recent sightings uh, in that area. I, I think that flap of the uh, uh, late 90 or late 80s, uh, early 90s was um, was the last, at least to date. Um I have not heard of anything happening in that area. And I, and I sort of, I keep a toe in ufology. I'm not a, I'm not an investigator anymore, but I sort of keep uh, up to date with what's going on, especially in Canada. And I haven't really heard anything in that area, except for, except for Guardian, you know, Guardian pops up every now and again. Um, when the Unsolved Mysteries clip starts to circulate and people sort of say, Hey, whatever happened with that case. And I think that's probably why, um, uh, the people that made UFO town, uh, Nick Crow and, uh, Kitty Lemaire, um, decided to do a documentary about it in the first place because it is so interesting. And whatever happened with those people, whatever happened with that case, you know, it's, uh, it's still a mystery. <laughs> right. Right. Now I know you do a lot of other things as well. And I believe I saw that you have, uh, that something's coming out on film or something that you yeah. have worked on. Yeah. I'm and- a writer right now. I write, uh, I write fiction. Um, I write mostly horror fiction, some detective fiction and, uh, yeah, recently, um, uh, one of my stories, um, it's a sort of a haunted house story called uh, The House on Ashley Avenue, is going to be um, adapted for film, um, for a Netflix film, actually. And it's being produced by uh, Sam Raimi, and it's being uh, directed by uh, Corin Hardy, who directed a couple of horror movies called uh, The Nun and uh, The Hollow. So it's a, it's a really, uh, really exciting time for me because um, yeah. these are people that I've always wanted to work with. It's... Uh, as I always say, it's like it's like it's like the film version of having Stephen King come up to you and saying, "Hey, you want to write a book together?" You know, like this is yeah. this is the movie equivalent of that. So oh, that's great. Know, it's, uh, it's pretty it's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so, but getting back to like the UFO topic, up oh, there she can. There he is again. Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how uh, how often do you look into that? How, how much of your time is spent on that topic? Um. Well, I would say fiction-wise, I've written, I written, I wrote a novel about it. It was, uh, it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek satire of, of ufology, not not in a making fun of it kind of a way, but sort of a uh, like a Doctor Strange love kind of a way, sort of a uh, um, 
a look at governments and conspiracies and sort of how they run. It's also about family too. So it's, uh, it actually has a lot of heart to it on a, uh, on the actual level of ufology. It's really just a matter of keeping up to date with, uh, with um, the latest cases, such as they are, you know, I sort of, uh, I follow the blogs, I follow the major websites. I like reading Kevin Randall's stuff. He's got a great oh, yeah. blog where he just dissects stuff. He seems pretty, uh, pretty level-headed. And I, yeah. I just, he just seems like a guy who's just like, he's not trying to make excuses about, about like the Roswell case, even though his opinions have changed on it over the years. I think, mm-hmm. I think uh, it's the people that are sort of steadfastly sticking to their guns. And even in the light of, uh, uh, of of things that come uh, come true or or new information that comes to light, um, you don't want to believe them as much because I think this is it's such a fluid um, subject matter that I think it's it only makes sense that people's opinions change. You know, so for me, it's just like he seems like a a really level headed guy. You know, in Jacques Vallée, you know, like a, yeah. uh, I I looked him up in the past few years and I thought that he had passed away. I, I couldn't believe he's still with us. It's like, thank God. I was like, wow, he's still here. He's still fighting the good fight, which is great. Cause, uh, yeah. uh, again, um, his book, it was a passport to Magnolia or Magolia. Uh, I'm, I'm butchering that. I read that like 20 years ago, but I mean, it's like, it's the, it's the book on ufology and for me and the way that, um, uh, folklore has evolved over time. Um, it, it, I think that book combined with, uh, John Keel's Mothman prophecies are two of the best books on ufology because they really explore the phenomenon just in, beyond the sense of our aliens, our extraterrestrials visiting us and they get into, um, folklore, other dimensions, um, just other explanations other than, you know, the typical scientific one, which is usually discounted by scientists that basically say, you know, aliens and physical crafts would not be able to reach us. It wouldn't try to reach us. It doesn't really make any sense with physics as we understand it. So um, I think it offers a, uh, not even another explanation, but a, uh, a very different understanding of the way that we approach that phenomenon. It's it's one of the reasons why I've always liked um, uh, a book like The Mothman Prophecies, because it starts as a book about uh, the seemingly about a, like a cryptid, The Mothman, but it encompasses virtually every single kind of paranormal phenomenon from UFO sightings to premonitions to, um, uh, you know, time travel. I mean, everything, everything's in that book. It's just like, that's when you want to talk about a flap, I mean, something definitely seemed like it was happening in Point Pleasant during those, those 18 months that uh, culminated with the collapse of the silver bridge. Right. Uh, It's uh, those are the books that I like, you know, those are, that's the way that I like to really explore the phenomenon is in is in a global way where it's not just here's a video um, what could this thing be? It's, it's like the, the, the recent Navy videos. Like I watched the 60 minute segment and I thought it was interesting insofar as, yeah, the videos look cool. You know, I don't know. I don't think that they're aliens, but maybe they are, but it's just, it's, it's like uh, in this day and age now, um, you see a, a video or a photo, which can be so easily faked. Um, I need more than that to be convinced. I'm not going to look at those videotapes. I certainly didn't watch that 60 minute segment and go, Oh, it must be aliens. You know, it's just, I'm interested. I'm keeping an open mind, but you got to give me more than that. You know, it's, uh, yeah. I, I think, there's well, I don't think, I don't think the Navy is going to be putting out faked videos. No, no. And I, I just think that maybe not faked, but maybe, uh, mis misidentified, I guess, you know, like they're, they're definitely interesting, but what can really be, um, what can really be um, extrapolated from them? You know, like it's, it's them, the, the, the pilots as witnesses are a lot are very compelling because they seem like they are confused by what they're seeing. So that, that definitely goes a long way. But again, Mm -hmm. um, 
there's a certain segment of the public, especially the uh, the people, the, the public that's interested in UFOs, and they see a headline that says Navy Navy admits to study on UFOs, and they hear Navy says UFOs are definitely aliens, and like that's of course that's not what they're saying, right? Yeah. But that's what they hear. They hear UFO and they immediately think alien. When all they're saying is we just saying it's unidentified. We don't know what it is. It's, yeah. Could be well, a- I think that a number of them will point that out. Um, that that's, you know, they, they'll remind the listening audience or whatever that yeah. it's unidentified and that's all it is at this point. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, Jordan put in a question. Um, I hear a lot is happening with your book. Every house is haunted. What's going on with that? Yeah. Well, that's the, uh, that's the, the book that my short story, the house on Ashley Avenue is in. So, uh, that's the one that's being turned into the, uh, ah, like same one. Yeah. yeah. That's the same one. Excellent. So, yeah. yeah. I'm Excellent. actually working on that as a, as a consultant too, which is, uh, which is always nice because a lot of times they don't usually involve the, uh, the author. So uh, I guess they think that I can bring something to the, uh, to the project because they didn't just say, we're just going to buy the rights and <laughs> away we go, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, 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 and then you don't have a handle on it at all. Uh, yeah. So interesting. I think what I'm going to do is uh, I usually do this at the last half hour. I might as well do it now and get the uh, audience. If anyone wants to give you a ring, I'm going to put that phone number up. And uh, that number is um, 855-472-5483. So anyone wants to call in, uh, Bill will be standing by. And he is ready. So, um, yeah, so that's interesting. And and there uh, there was a, a guy that I talked to in Connecticut. Oh, he wrote a book about a, a haunted, the most haunted house in America. I'm mm-hmm. sure you know it's in Connecticut. I don't know if you heard this story about it, but it's pretty wild stuff. Yeah, no, I think I did hear about that. I mean, I, I love any any haunted house story. I mean, that's why I wrote the one for the Netflix movie, trying to, you know, you're trying to really honor the tradition of the haunted house story while bringing something new to it, but but bringing something new that is very organic, that doesn't feel like a gimmick. So, yeah. um, I mean, that's, that's what it is for me with everything that I write. There's, uh, when you're working, especially in genre fiction, it's it's not even hard to do something original. I mean, you sort of just know that if you're writing a ghost story or a monster story or a vampire story, there's been hundreds or thousands of them written over the years. So the the thing that you bring that's unique to it is yourself. You know, you don't necessarily have to come up with a wacky twist to it. You just have to write it honestly the way that you would do it. And, and that was something that always really resonated with me um, that the crime author uh, Elmore Leonard said was he writes the book that he would want to read himself. Like this is his rules of writing. And it feels like a no brainer, but I mean, um, I mean, a lot of writers really tear themselves up really trying to come up with something or, or uh, they can be really hard on themselves and myself included. So I really try to adhere to his rules of writing because they're, they're, they're kind of simple, but they're, they're so they're all, they're simple in their brilliance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put, we, we talked earlier, you mentioned uh, Kevin Randall, who I have a, a great amount of respect for. Mm-hmm. And in the, uh, in the chat room, I'm going to put up um, his blog because the reason I would like to, um, you know, talk a little bit quickly about him and put his blog out there is that a lot of times when I'm trying to figure out if something's a really good case or not, mm-hmm. I go to Kevin's blog and you can find 90% of the time you can find that case on his blog and, and his uh, very well thought out and researched, you know, um, opinion about Mm -hmm. it. So it's great for, it's a great place for someone who's just getting into looking at this topic to. Oh, absolutely. Well, and he's, he's very level headed and he has a lot of credentials, um, but he doesn't, um, 
he doesn't lead with them. You know, he doesn't try to say, well, this is who I am and this is my military yeah. career. So you should listen to me. Dr. Randall. Yeah. Like, like, like any um, intelligent person, he just, he leads with his words. You know, he leads with his mind. And um, that's why I've always enjoyed the blog. Like you said, like I go back to it and um, I'll just search it. When, and, and like you said, that if you're, if there's a case you're interested in, whether it's like Kexberg or Bob Lazar or anything in the, in the UFO uh, lore, um, he's usually got a blog on it somewhere, if not a few, and, and they're yeah. always very even keeled and level headed. Even, even, um, even when he's skeptical, like, like he, he's, he's not mean about it. He's, he's just, he, he's willing to be convinced, but he's not going to, but he's not a fool. You know, he's yeah. not gonna be convinced by, by someone saying, oh, well, he's just, he's just real and you're, and you're, you're, uh, you're trying to debunk this, blah, blah, blah. Like it's, it's usually the response to a lot of skeptics. I think there are people who are, who are active debunkers, but, um, that's the way that I approach my skepticism. I'm not, I'm interested. I'm willing to be convinced, but I'm going to need more than, than a blurry video or, or, a, or an eyewitness account of someone who says, well, I know what I saw and it was definitely not a conventional aircraft and you can't convince me otherwise. It's like, well, that's okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, but if you're going to put that forth as evidence, I need, I need more than that. You know, this was going back to my investigator days. Um, I always believed in, uh, and, and listening more than, than talking uh, as an investor, just sort of um, almost like an oral storyteller. You're collecting the stories of these witnesses. And I wouldn't really question them because a lot of times there was no, there's no point, you know, like they weren't, this was in a, in a time before, you know, people had cameras on their cell phones. They usually didn't really have any evidence. You know, it was, you had to have been carrying a, a camera or a video camera on your person at the time. And most people weren't when they had these encounters. So um, you're really That's just right. collecting eyewitness accounts, which you can't really do anything with. So it's yeah. uh, um, you just have to be respectful and um, ask your questions and and record it all, right? So yeah. and hope that you maybe know, it accounts for something. I remember talking to Bruce Maccabee years ago uh, when I first. I mean, we're talking. I don't know, maybe five, seven years ago, mm-hmm. and he said that um, he thinks. He was thinking, you know, even though he was the video and photo analyst for MUFON for a long time or, or one of those agencies, uh, he says the witnesses are more important than the image. And and, and I, I think the two of them together, mm-hmm. you know, makes more sense. But, I mean, if your witness is off, I understand what he's saying about that. If the witness is off or it doesn't hold up, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, uh, then there could be a question. We do have uh, Russell on uh hold from maryland well welcome to the show russell hey mark how are you i'm doing well thanks for the call you have a question for our guest tonight yes we've been seeing that the navy's admitted to i mean the questioning beyond belief incredible um aerodynamic things that they're doing don't think that any other entity or country in the world that had that technology they'd be number one and we'd already be in the can as far as number one as a superpower, I mean, needless to say, if that's a technology they have, we're done. Why aren't they using it? Hmm. That's a good point. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm going back to what I saw in the 60 Minutes episode, where uh, you, they obviously spoke to uh, two of the pilots, and they and they showed some of the uh, the uh, the plane camera footage. And again, it's just it's um, it, it's it's really hard to draw conclusions because again, like they're, they're, they're Navy pilots. They, they are saying that they've never seen anything like this. Um, there is some video footage to back it up. Um, if the 
objects were able to, you know, execute the, um, I think it was like a 60,000 foot plunge, you know, without a sonic boom. And, and it wasn't just, you know, a mistake in, in, in the, uh, the monitoring equipment, you know, like a miscalibrated radar or something. And, and, and there was a craft that actually did that without producing that, uh, that, that sonic boom. And it was, you know, then you could say that, yeah, that, that technology does seem way too far ahead, <laughs> you know, of what, of what this would be on, on the earth, you know, whether it's Russia or China. So again, it's just, I think it's compelling, but for me, it's, it's hard to really draw conclusions, you know. Yeah. Can I say something more? Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. It, 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 you know, they've, they've not used that, and, and of course, you've seen the same videos I had, the latest one with the big pyramids, which obviously, if it's the perspective is correct, they're huge, mm-hmm. and they're doing things that we have no technology to do. So, I mean, if I was another foreign country and had the technology, I wouldn't be sitting back watching it, not using it. They'd be number one in the United States, and whomever is using it, Russia, China, whoever, maybe not even Russia or China, will go, you know, I'm not going to ET. I've been watching it a long time, and I, I've been seeing some incredible things with people with cameras. And, and I agree with a lot of things she said, too. But when I see technologies, it's out And I can't believe that, that people are analyzing them things as a, a plane in the background. And they like the go-fast video and things like that in, in, in transmitting vehicles, <laughs> going in and out of the water videos from really expensive systems. So uh, just, a, just, a, you know, just a thought, guys. So thanks, Martin. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just to, to close that up, uh, I do think that pyra- the pyramid video, um, I, I think that is the weakest of them all only yeah. because it could be a camera aperture. But um, but the other videos, I, I think, are very compelling. But uh, really, thank you for the call. I appreciate it, Russell. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the videos are compelling, too. I just I'm very curious to see where we go from there. Right. Because, I mean, it's if it is a technology and we're worried that this is something advanced from us, then we should be seeing some you would think some, some blowback from that, you know, like as if it's someone that's using technology against us in some way, um, is it something that we have to actually be afraid of? You know, um, I'm not yeah. like, again, I think, I think it's compelling, but I'm not really convinced yet. You know, like it's going to take more than that for me to be convinced. It's just belief. Belief is a very strong thing. There's a, people tend to sort of believe what they want to believe, of course. Um, and I just try to keep as my mind as open as possible. So for me to go from, from zero to aliens um, based on what we've seen, like say, for example, in the 60 minutes episode, whether it's because the Navy pilots have got a lot of credentials and they don't normally see this stuff. I, like I said, I'm very interested and I, and I, and I, and I believe that they had the encounter that they had, but for me to go from that to aliens, I'm not there yet. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you know? And some well, people, I think, some people I think, have, don't even less, they need much less than that to convince themselves of aliens. Right. Yeah. Well, I think when it comes to the realm of trying to explain something, you know, I've been careful all along to like not say, you know, everything's aliens or extraterrestrial, but I think it's definitely in the running. And uh, because when you can't explain what some of these technologies as what you were just mentioning, you know, lack of sonic boom for, you know, breaking the speed of sound 10 times over, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, things like that and stopping on a dime when, you know, 1500 G's or whatever appears to have. Um, And then uh, for the eyewitnesses of the pilots, you know, those type of things, uh, it's kind of, okay, uh, let's look at the possibilities. You know, what are the possibilities for that? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe, you know, I believe one of the sayings uh, that I heard Lou Elizondo say is, uh, you know, 
maybe it's like a hundred years or a thousand years advanced. I mean, that's, that's a big stretch between a hundred and a thousand years, the way technology grows. Um, but he doesn't think that we have the technology. So, you know, that's when it kind of, uh, it, it seems like that might be true. You know, if, if what they have seen on radar and what they've seen and witnessed and all that. Yeah, all- the the radar example is is a good one when they talk about the uh, I, I think it's sixty thousand feet, sixty or eighty thousand feet, the the drop uh, where it yeah. makes the, the extreme drop. I mean, that's where I would say if that was one that was only picked up by their equipment, what's more likely that there's that it's an alien ship that's that's able to do this maneuver without creating a sonic boom, or is it something wrong with the the monitoring equipment? I go towards that, then I go towards well, it must be aliens. You know, like, that's just, that's just me, you know, like, again, like maybe, maybe it was aliens, but you're, I'm going to need more than that to, to be convinced, you know, it's, uh, um, yeah, and- it was 80,000 feet. And, and it was also, not, it wasn't just a single radar. There were other, you know, there was more radar involved. So that, I think it's one of the, the most compelling cases mm. and, you know, and, um, so, um, there are just some cases out there that just keep me looking into this topic. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I'm so interested. I mean, as skeptical as I am, at the end of the day, I'm not dismissing it. You know, like I am interested. I am I am listening. Um, unfortunately, having a skeptical attitude is sort of seen as being very combative when it's really just, hey, man, I'd love for it to be aliens. But I like, again, I'm not a fool and I'm going I need more than just the mystery. You know, I love the mystery. I write about the mystery. It's it's the reason why I got interested in this in the first place. And even though I'm no longer actively investigating, it's the reason why I keep a toe in the business. But I think if you ask even the most respected people like your, your Jacques Vallées and your Kevin Randalls, they would tell you the exact same thing. There are definitely cases that they find very compelling, but whether or not they actually think extraterrestrial biological entities are visiting Earth today I don't know if either one of them or anyone who is, um, you know, very uh, skeptically minded would say, oh, yeah, definitely. I think they might point to certain cases and say, well, this one's very compelling or that one's very compelling, um, as, as I would, you know. But it's it's just so hard because, I mean, even when you look at a case like Roswell, which is sort of held up as the the UFO retrieval case, it's very little evidence to support it. You know, even, even Randall to this day doesn't think that it was extraterrestrial. You know, I mean, this was a case that for 20 years, no one was speaking about until, you know, uh, Berlitz and uh, wrote, wrote the book, you know, back in the seventies, you know, there was a whole span of years when no one was talking about this. They, yeah. um, after, uh, after 47. So um, it definitely, again, it seemed like something had happened there, but there was never any physical evidence. Um, it was really just stories that people had told that had been passed down almost like a folklore. Again, I'm, I'm very interested in it as, as a kind of folklore, but, um, but in terms of the, the nuts and bolts evidence, there wasn't really much of anything that said, Oh yeah, definitely. That was aliens. That was a, that was a UFO that crashed there. But again, it's a mystery. You know, I, th- I find it very interesting. Like a lot of people, I wasn't convinced um, of the, uh, I think it was the 90, was it 97, the, uh, uh, the balloon theory, the, the top secret. Balloon oh yeah. In the nineties. Right. Yeah. When they sort of disclosed that that wasn't entirely convincing either, but again, just because it's not convincing doesn't mean that I immediately go to aliens, you know? So there's lots of reasons why the government is not forthcoming with information and to assume that the solution or the reason is extraterrestrial. Um, 
there's there's a lot less that uh, that governments have uh, have covered up for. You know, there are a lot like smaller reasons than than aliens. Uh, a lot smaller mistakes that they've still felt the need to uh, keep from the public. It's almost a uh, a knee jerk reaction with with some agencies. They're just it's uh, it's become standard policy just to sort of obfuscate and uh, and lie. You know. Well, I think if the government doesn't know, like to say the Air Force or whatever has no idea what's going on, it's just as dangerous as if they did. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they have no way to protect the skies uh, or, you know, or have answers about what's going on. Absolutely. So, and they don't want it. They don't. I mean, the nation's security is only based on how much faith you have in it, that the, the people have in that's it. Right. And, and yeah, you don't want to start. Frankly, I think there'd be more mass hysteria um, from uh, from a government saying we don't know how to protect our people than you would have with um, <laughs> the government saying aliens exist and we've been in contact with them for 60 years. I mean, we've seen enough movies and TV shows of this idea that, oh, it's going to rock people. It's going to destroy religion. I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> I don't either. We've been pretty prepared from UFO media for the past 50 years, good and bad. You know? Yeah. No, no, I don't. I think you're right about that. I don't think it would. I think a lot of people are sort of prepared Mm-hmm. for it or have slowly been preparing uh you know i mean if if that's the case and the argument you mentioned earlier that i've i've heard a lot of times about you know how would they get here from uh there from here you know mm-hmm. that's when you do hear a lot and you know maybe it's just something that we will figure out someday if that if it if it is mm-hmm. that we're being visited you know um yeah. because we're just floating around and you know, I in think space. They would have to be moving through dimensions if they were coming here in any kind of a physical way. I like to think that um, if I was if I was going to write it, if I was going to write a realistic story about actual contact that the government had been covering up, it wouldn't have been a UFO crash. It wouldn't have been aliens on ice in a bunker somewhere. It would be it would be a signal. It would be it would be radio. I think I think it would be a. I mean, the, the reason why that doesn't hold up in terms of reality, oh, that we've been in radio contact with aliens, is the fact that. There are so many facilities that would have been able to intercept a broadcast like that, that the idea that only, like, say, the U.S. government or the CIA or the NSA, Hmm. it just doesn't hold any water. Like, there's just there's no way of screening that kind of a call that would be being broadcast to Earth and 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 be able to uh, to to have been aimed directly at Earth. I mean, it's sort of an infinitesimal. You start getting into the math there where, again, all you need to talk to is a scientist, not even a um, an astronomer, but just a, a mathematician who will tell you the the mathematical possibility of this, this, or this happening. Um, it's uh, it's like what you're talking about with um, uh, the Navy uh, footage about how the technology seems to be either a hundred or a thousand years advanced, even a thousand years advanced. Uh, say say it's an alien technology that's a thousand years. The idea that there's an alien species that's a, like around a thousand years advanced from us is still very astronomical. Like. I think it's more likely that they'd be millions of years advanced to us, yes. you know, yeah. in which mm-hmm. case they would never, we would never see them. You know, it wouldn't be, Oh, here's an unexplained sighting or here's a craft that's not able to create a sonic boom. No way. They would be stealth all the way. We wouldn't even know they're watching us, you know? So, yeah, there's a lot of questions about that. Like uh, I remember, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, someone wrote uh, during the chat, you know, if, if they did want to be seen, why do they have lights? Yeah. Why would they need lights? Yeah, you know I mean, well, that, that was a, the big thing with the Guardian case was yeah. the Guardian included documents on why the flares were there was because they were to help it land, help the UFO land, which of course makes no sense that you <laughs> have this craft that flies millions of late years, but needs, you know, needs flares to, to land its craft. Or again, you go back to Roswell or any UFO 
crash retrieval story. They make great stories. I love the story about Shag Harper. It's a Canadian UFO. Yeah, crash. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. It's great. But again, they, they make good stories, but there's not really any evidence to back them up, even Roswell, because the uh, I'll give the aliens credit. They're always they are always very considerate that they crash their ships into very remote areas like deserts and the deep ocean rather than crashing them into any populated areas because it never happens, you know. There, there's, there have been dozens, if not hundreds, of reports of crash retrievals over the years from all over the world, and they're never in a place where there could have been anyone to see it or, or recover material from it. It's always very conveniently in a place where the government's able to come in, you know, scoop everything up, sanitize the area. They don't leave anything behind. And for me, that's what I would like as evidence. I would like someone to go back to Roswell, and if they found a piece of debris or some alien DNA, and they take that to 60 Minutes, I'd be much more convinced by that than the, than the Navy stuff, which again, I'm, I find very, very interesting and I want to know more and I'm keep a very open mind, but I'm still not convinced yet that it's aliens visiting the earth yeah, as, as much as I wish that was true. You know, the, the earth is 70% ocean, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we were just talking about the crash when we have like debris coming in from the space, from space, you know, landing, it usually lands you know, in the ocean because it's 70% of the earth. So yeah, that is, uh, I wonder if, uh, has anybody ever talked about a crash in the ocean mm-hmm. or recovery? I know there was that one off of Malibu, I think where mm-hmm. it's just a rock formation. I, I mm-hmm. believe that it is, but it's, well, say you were aliens visiting the earth. I mean, say you, say you were here and your technology was so advanced, but somehow you really were worried about detection, which again, doesn't really make a lot of sense to me when you see these craft and they're able to do these maneuvers, I always think, wow, they're so advanced. Why are we seeing them at all? It makes no sense to me. If they don't want to be seen, if they don't want to be seen, they shouldn't be able to be seen. Um, bending light, you know, electromagnetic fields, there will be ways to render themselves invisible to even the human eye, much less all of our surveillance equipment. But yeah, you're right. The, the Earth is 70, 80% water. Um, why are they not just hanging out there? You know, like, I mean, uh, James, oh, yeah, this is one of my favorite movies. That is another theory. Yeah, it's um, and that's what the aliens do in the abyss. They 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 don't want to be detected by humans, so they go to the one place that humans can't go: an o- ocean trench, eight miles, you know, uh, below the below sea level, where the pressure is too great. Humans just they can't even go. Their technology can barely even reach it. That to me makes sense. It's not just a good story, but from the alien angle, where they don't want to be detected, and there are physical, you know, biological Andes with physical crafts. That's what you would do if you did not want to be noticed by the uh, the local population now we only have about four minutes left so this question um is a short short shortish answer but <laughs> what would you say is uh what would you consider the most compelling ufo case oh. and it doesn't have to be canada yeah you know what? well one of them is canada and again I would, i'm going to go back to mothman just because i feel like I don't know if it was UFOs, but something paranormal was, de- I feel like something paranormal was definitely happening there just because it, it was such a melange of UFOs, cryptids, uh, premonitions, men in black. Um, I just, I can't believe that something wasn't going on there, whether or not it was connected to the bridge or not. I think the collapse of the bridge was pretty much um, explained. Um, it wasn't really supernatural. And, it, and I think they kind of said it was, it was, it was coming. It was, uh, it was a load bearing issue, but I've always felt like, you know, I would have liked to have gone back in time and investigated one case. It would have been Mothman. I think maybe something was really happening there, but again, it's hard to tell, right? Um, so much time has passed. Um, in terms of uh, specifically UFO cases, I think Falcon Lake in, in Canada, 
Oh yeah. Um, you had a witness who seemed really legit. And again, people, people do lie. They don't need a reason to lie. So I'm always very wary of, Oh, this person tells the truth and they're honest as the day is long. They have no reason to lie. That's not usually convincing to me. People don't need a reason to lie, but I will say that he seemed really, really honest. I didn't really think there was a reason why he would tell the story. There was trace evidence. There was physical effects on his body. Right. There was, there was material collected um, at the site um, it just seemed like it really fulfilled a lot of those categories that even like an investigator like jail and Hynek would be able to say, yeah, something happened here. We don't know what it is. It was an experimental aircraft or something, but something physically tangible actually happened there. And that's why I like it. It's just whether or not it was aliens or not, at least it's a case that you can really sink your teeth into as an investigator. Like something really did seem to, yeah, there he is. Something, yeah. something really did seem to happen to him and something seemed to happen to him in that area from, you sort of treat it like my father was in the RCMP. So I come from an investigator's background. So I really think of, you treat it like a crime scene. You treat it like a criminal case. These are the things you need to line up. You're like eyewitness accounts are important, but if you take that to like a trial, you're probably going to need more than that to get a conviction. So um, you need other evidence. You need physical evidence. You need, you know, forensics, that sort of a thing. And if you were going to apply that to this UFO investigation, I think Falcon Lake just really checks off a lot of those boxes. I still don't know what it is, but um, it, for me, it's just, again, it's another one of these ones where it just seems like such a, a, a genuine dyed-in-the-wool mystery. Right, right. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. I wish you could have had you on for a whole show. Maybe you'll you'll come back someday. Whoops. Uh, I, did I kick you out? <laughs> so <laughs> here you are. <laughs> I don't know what happened. The technology. Anyway, thank you very much. It was yeah. a real pleasure. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Yeah. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Next week, uh, we'll be back from – I'm actually uh, – I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to be here Tuesday next week. I'm going to do my best. Uh, but uh, it should be. Um, if so, it'll be here with Ron James. So thanks so much, everyone. And we'll see you next week. Remember to keep your eyes to the sky.